Radio Waves. Radio Waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. Today is Thursday, the 15th of December 2016. My name is Brendan O'Brien. And this week's episode is Meet the Asteroid Hunters, Daniel Barmberger and Guy Wells. Each week we have a special guest from the fields of radio astronomy and optical astronomy. We'll have a news roundup. Unfortunately, we've not been able to get through to Tver to talk to Nadezhda Sherbakov this week, so we'll be having her wrap up on the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram next week. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Hello, Guy. How are you doing? Hello, Daniel. Yeah, how are you doing? Very good, thank you. It gives me great pleasure today to Skype over to England to speak with Guy Wells and over to the centre of Germany to speak with Daniel Bumberger. They are two very keen and enthusiastic NEO hunters, NEO hunters. Let's start with you, Guy. Guy, when did you first develop an interest or passion for science and space and astronomy? My interest developed from when I was about seven or eight. My uncle Peter was interested in astronomy and I think you kind of rubbed it off on me. And I remember making a note of the date and then 88 days later... I also made a note and Mercury had uh, made one orbit of the sun. So it started from a fairly early age. Very good. And what about you, Daniel? Yeah, that was very early, I guess. Um, I remember the end of the Magellan mission to Venus in 1994 when I was seven. And there was a documentary about it in television. And I did let my mom tape record it. So my interest must have started definitely earlier than that. Um, I can't remember when. I've always been fascinated by space and I wanted to get involved somehow. Very good. Now, keep going, Daniel. Can you tell us how you developed that passion up to the present day? Yes, um, sure. My uncle had a small telescope and he let look me through, uh, through it sometimes. When he decided to buy a larger one, he gave the telescope to me and I used it to observe the planets from my backyard. As a child, I read a lot about science and really everything I could find. Of course, much of that was too complicated for a child, especially the math, but I was thrilled by the pieces I could understand and was hooked by the rest. After school, I decided to study mathematics. It was certainly related to my interest in science. I was interested in orbital mechanics, and that's how I got into asteroids. But I never became an astrophotographer. You know, it it all seemed more appealing to read about things than to go out and do them myself. When I was a teenager, I thought, that amateur astrophotography was pointless. Of course, I don't think so anymore. And I think that taking a photo is a great way to connect to the beauty of outer space. But in the end, I'm still much more interested in increasing knowledge than in taking nice photos. It shows that my approach was really different to guys. But it's it's exactly that what makes our collaboration so fruitful. Uh, so 
fruitful. Guy is a dedicated astrophotographer and a dedicated photographer in general. And I am interested in collecting photons and turning these photons into numbers and turning these numbers into comprehension. We are very different in that sense. And wow, it sounds fantastic. Guy, could you summarize your astronomical journey? I had like a, a toy refractor as a child. And obviously you could see some craters and stuff like this. It was all very interesting. And then as I got older, I managed to get hold of a, a small reflector like Daniel, which obviously made me more interested. And then I got a slightly larger Cassegrain type telescope and began doing astrophotography and planetary photography. But then with such humble equipment, it was never going to be the greatest photographs in the world. So I started looking at more unusual objects, which led me to Pluto, which I imaged over a week and then put the images on top of each other and I could see Pluto moving against the background stars. Yep. So after having done this, I wanted more things like this. So I began looking at asteroids and we end up where we are today, asteroid hunters. <laughs> now, Daniel, can you summarise your astronomical journey from school to the present day? As I mentioned before, I never was an astrophotographer. I took a different path. For most of my life, I just followed everything that happened in the world of astronomy by reading about it. And in particular, I was interested in the exploration of our solar system. But there wasn't a way to share that interest. It was something I did just for me. Then about two years ago, something happened. The New Horizons spacecraft was approaching Pluto. And NASA did a fantastic job at getting people interested and involving the public and giving people the feeling that they can be part of this exploration, especially on social media like Facebook. And I felt involved in it too. And that left a lasting impression on me. That was a game changer, really, for me. Not only was it a way to, to learn more for myself, but also to connect to that science. And I suddenly noticed that my knowledge was useful for others because I could help people who had questions about astronomy and I could answer their questions. Then I met Guy and we created North Hole Branch Observatory. And since then, uh, near-Earth near asteroids are in the focus of my astronomical work. But I'm not just interested in observing them. I think it's important to raise awareness about the danger of asteroid impacts. Uh, so we actively support the Asteroid Day Global Awareness Campaign. That's where we are uh, right now. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Daniel. Very good. Now, what about your non-astronomical careers, Guy? What do you do during the daytime? I know you spend a lot of time at night working with very sophisticated equipment. What about your day job? At the moment, I look after my children. So mainly I'm at home with the children and take them to school while my wife's at work. Fantastic. You're a very lucky man. What about you, Daniel? What other career do you have? I study mathematics in Marburg, Germany, but that's related to my interest in astronomy. There's a second great passion I have, and that's history. I love to spend hours in archives and digging through old documents and that stuff. And I'm currently working on a book about the history of my hometown. That's very different from my astronomy-related work, but I find it's a nice contrast. Very good. So now you are both serious hunters of near-Earth objects. For our audience's point of view, could you fill us in and explain what these near-Earth objects are that you hunt down? Yeah, sure. The space between the planets isn't completely empty. Asteroids and comets that orbit the sun, and there are small rocks, some the size of a car, and some as big as a city. 
Most of them stay between Mars and Jupiter, but a fraction of them orbit near the Earth. And these are the objects we call NEOs. Most asteroids are harmless, but NEOs can be dangerous because they can collide with Earth. And when they do, they can cause serious damage. The problem is we have no idea where most of the dangerous NEOs are. There are tens of thousands of them, and most are still left to be discovered. Each of them is only observable for brief periods of time, and there's a lot of sky to monitor. So you need somebody to survey the whole sky all the time. And amateurs don't have the resources to do that. But that's why NEOs are mostly discovered by the big surveys NASA has installed, by Catalina and Pan-STARRS. These are the big surveys, mostly in the United States, some in other places. But it's not only enough to discover these asteroids, it's crucial to have directed follow-up to increase the observation arcs and to make sure that they aren't lost. That's what we can do. So we don't discover NEOs, but we help to confirm the, the existence and keep track of them. That's an important part of the work is perfect for amateur astronomers like us. Fantastic. And we know that citizen scientists like you guys are having an impact on some very serious science. Now, Guy, could you tell us what technologies you've been using to identify and image these near-Earth objects? Sure. We started using a 6-inch Schmidt-Cassegrain and um, just a standard DSLR camera. While this was good enough to image the brighter asteroids in the main belt, it wasn't sensitive enough to allow us to detect these faint near-Earth asteroids. So we uh, purchased a CCD camera, which was infinitely more sensitive than DSLR, and that allows us to not only track some of the faint objects, but um, even helped come the existence of some of the new asteroids that have just been discovered. Very good. Now, you have set up something called the Northold Branch Observatory. Can you tell us about how you set up this observatory? Yeah, sure. That's a joint venture that started in summer 2015. Before I met Guy, I spent the first half of 2015 following the New Horizons mission to Pluto. Yes. And everything related to it. And someday in August, I saw a Facebook post about Pluto. uh, Two photos taken a few days apart with a small telescope and a DSLR camera, and you could see Pluto moving. Wow. And I thought, uh, that's fantastic. It's how Pluto was discovered more than 80 years ago. And I knew it was something that not many astrophotographers would try. Um, and I decided to write a message to the person who took these photos, and that's how I met Guy. I had something in mind, <laughs> and I asked him, uh, what if we join forces and have to determine the orbits of asteroids? I was interested in that before, but he was the chance to get involved in it. Guy thought it was a great idea, and within a few weeks, we had taken the necessary steps to become an official asteroid observatory, which we called the Northwood Branch Observatory. I think one reason why the internet and social media are a great thing is how easy it became to meet people from other countries. You know, guys from England and I'm from Germany and 10 or 20 years ago, nothing of this could have happened. Exactly, Uh yes. The the internet allows us to exchange data back and forth very quickly. And that's how Guy can take the images at the observatory near London. And I can do the measurements from my home PC in Germany. Fantastic. Now, Guy, so the observatory is located in London. How do you overcome those issues with light pollution? Yes, the light pollution here in West London is terrible, to be honest. 
Um, we're not far from Heathrow Airport, so it's pretty bright. But it's one of the challenges we face. There's nothing we can really do about it. We just have to, I suppose, take longer exposures or longer amount of time to resolve these asteroids. But it's not insurmountable. It's difficult, but we get by. I suppose most observatories are, lo are trying to locate themselves in dark areas, but we really had no choice, so we see that as part of the challenge and part of the game, really. It's, it's fun to, to see that you can do a lot even from, from a location with, with very bright skies and really not mm -hmm. optimal conditions. Fantastic. Now, can you tell us what an astrograph is? I've been following you guys for some time now, and I see that you've got a new instrument called an astrograph. Could you explain what that is and its advantages over an ordinary telescope and, uh, say, the camera mount with a DSLR mounted on it? Yeah, sure. Um, the astrograph is just a telescope that's basically designed just for photography. So it's, the quality of it is a lot better than the standard screen we had before. Um, it also receives a lot more light than our previous telescope. This one's 10 inch, whereas the last one was a 6. Yep. If you notice in um, professional observatories all around the world, they use astrographs. I mean, a really good example is Hubble. That's a very big astrograph in space. Right. <laughs> so what's the basic difference between an astrograph and a telescope? Daniel, do you want to? Yeah. It's not that they, uh, that you can't use a, a normal telescope for, for astrophotography, but the optics of a normal telescope are designed so that it works best if you use with an eyepiece and look through them and try to do it that way. Yes. By observing visually. You can do that with, with an astrograph, but the, the, the design of the optics of an astrograph is just to optimize for photography. Yeah, that's what we do, and that's why the astrograph is better for, for what we do. Fantastic. Can you explain to us what is the 20 magnitude limit? I understand that a person with good vision can go out at night and see something that has a magnitude of about six. What is this 20 magnitude limit and is it insurmountable? Can you overcome that limit? Yeah. Um, with our naked eyes, we can see stars down to about sixth magnitude. The higher the value, the fainter the object. So you say 20 magnitude, that's really faint. And most asteroids are very faint. That's why we don't see many asteroids when we look up to the sky. In fact, in fact, we, we see none. We need a telescope to detect even the brightest asteroids. Yes. The 20 magnitude limit you mentioned is not a limit that is insurmountable for astronomers, but its significant is that most dangerous NEOs are fainter than 20 magnitude uh, when they are discovered. Ah. So to break that barrier is really important for us. Yes. But it's possible, and objects and 20 mag are within range of our new 10-inch telescope uh, when it's combined with the sensitive CCD camera. So, yeah, we can do that. Fantastic. That's amazing. Now, these very small near-Earth objects, these asteroids, for example, how do you track them with such precision? They must be moving reasonably quickly against the background of stars. I've looked at yeah. some of your astrophotography and we can see quite clearly that you've frozen these objects in place and yet we can see the tracks of the stars behind them. Can you explain how you can track these things with such precision? Yeah, sure. That wouldn't be possible without recent advances in technology and software and, 
and also also the services provided by the Minor Planet Center and other organizations. You have to understand we when we take images of asteroids, we don't track the asteroids, we track the stars. Ah. Um, but we take exposures that are short enough so the asteroid doesn't trail it. Yep. The exposures are so short that the asteroid appears stationary. Yep. And then we use special software designed just for that purpose to stack these images together and to correct for the motion of the asteroid. Yep. And so as a result, use the light is combined from all these uh, lots of single exposures and the asteroid appears stationary. So you get trailed stars and the stationary asteroids. But we stack these images in a different way. We could make it so the stars appear stationary and the asteroid appears as a trail. But we need the asteroid to appear like a dot to increase the signal and to do measurements. It's also worth noting that, let's say, a Mag-18 asteroid wouldn't be visible in single exposures. So you need a lot of information and data to be able to stack them, to be able to measure that position correctly. There was a real revolution in astrophotography in the past 20 years or so, and with the introduction of CCD cameras, and they are much more sensitive than earlier models, and sensitive enough to detect even these faint neos at 20 mark with a relative small telescope, when you combine a lot, a lot of images in the right way. And then, as I said, we use this special software to do um, measurements, which is called astrometry. Yes. These measurements are then forwarded to the Minor Planet Center, which does all, which does all the math. So we don't have to worry about that. It would be really tedious to try to figure out where where an asteroid is at a specific time. Um, that's, that's all done by the Minor Planet Center. The, the software we use uh, can access their database. And so we just have to say, we want to observe this asteroid and the software say, says us where, these, where that asteroid is, how fast it's moving, how we have to stack the images. We don't have to worry about that. So with that data that you get online, does that give the instruction to your astrograph to tell it where to point in the sky? Well, yeah, I'd have to type in the coordinates based on what data that they have on the Minor Planet Centre indicate. And it, for some of the new asteroids, it may not be completely correct. So it still takes a, a while to sometimes find these asteroids in our image. But then once that's then again submitted, our new measurements will help you find the orbit of these, um, these newer um, asteroids. And um, it becomes easier for us to track them in the future. Very good. Now, a lot of the time you're confirming data that has already been provided. Have you come across things that you haven't expected? I haven't personally seen anything um, unknown in our images yet. Very good. It's quite difficult for London to be able to see things that, like, discover new um, objects. Yep. Okay, tell us a little about this competition that you've been running recently. I've been following that. You're about to announce the winners, I believe. Can you tell us the thinking behind the competition and how you developed it? Yeah, together we decided to have a competition. We normally, the aim is to like raise awareness about asteroids, and to near-Earth asteroids and objects like this. Yes. So we decided to have a competition to get other astronomers, astrophotographers who may not necessarily have ever imaged um, asteroids before to partake and have a go. So we selected a couple of asteroids, one from the Northern Hemisphere and one from the Southern. We had some interest and we've obviously got winners now. So it's nice to see that people have participated and imaged objects they've never would have imaged before. It's another way to build a strong community. 
Well, yeah, we hope so. It's nice that people are doing something they've never done before and hopefully may do it again in the future or even become astro-astronomers. Fantastic. Now, I noticed a guy has been posting some beautiful photos of planetary nebula on the North Holt site, and you've also been encouraging others to image planetary nebula. And I noticed something else about blazars. What are blazars? Yeah, it's difficult to comprehend what a blazar is. Let me first explain what a quasar is. Yep. A quasar is a supermassive black hole at the center of a very distant galaxy, which is active. So it's currently eating other stars and gas and material, which makes it very hot and very bright. These are the brightest objects in the universe. Yep. At the poles of such a quasar, you have two jets that come out at the North Pole and the South Pole. And when one of these chats is directed precisely in our dire- direction, we call this a blazer, which uh, makes it even more bright. These objects are interesting because they don't pose a, a threat, but they can help us to understand the, the nature of a universe and the origin of a universe. And they are among the, among the most distant objects that you can see with a telescope. Can you tell us how our listeners can follow your progress and learn more about near-Earth objects? Yeah, sure. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Facebook is the easiest way to get in contact with us personally. If you want to learn more about near-Earth asteroids, you should have a look at the Asteroid Day website at asteroidday.org. Yep. Um, the next Asteroid Day will be celebrated internationally on June 30th, and there will be a lot of ways to participate for the public. Follow our educational partners at NewShield2, also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you have a telescope and maybe have already used it to take photos with a digital camera, uh, you will be surprised how many asteroids you, there are you could observe. They don't get a lot of attention by amateur astrophotographers, but they are really nice targets, and maybe you can try. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on the work that you are doing, Guy and Daniel. We know that citizen scientists are doing wonderful work. I saw only yesterday that there were some citizen scientists that that just discovered a double neutron star, which is unprecedented, and that's just done by someone accessing some data on their home PC. So congratulations on the work that you're doing there, contributing to the world of citizen science, and in particular, your work with near-Earth objects. Thank you. Thank you. Been great talking with you. We've been talking with Guy Wells in London and with Daniel Bamberger in Marburg in Germany. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. Nice to meet you. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky this week? What's up in the sky this week? Let's start with something that's up in the morning sky. This will be the tail end of the Geminid meteor shower. Now, the Geminid meteor shower peaks on the 14th or so from Australia. They're peaking on the morning of the the 14th. In other places, it'll end on how far ahead or behind you are of universal time. Unfortunately, now, the, the, uh, the Geminids is probably one of the most reliable meteor showers, and it always has good rates. But unfortunately, this year, the, and it's also got a broad peak, 
So unlike some of the meteor showers where you have to be not only on the, the night or the peak, but you have to be sitting there right within a couple of hours, otherwise you don't see very much at all. Yep. The peak of the Geminids is quite broad. Fortunately, guess where the full moon is? Exactly right in the middle of it. Yeah, exactly. In fact, it's on the actual night of the peak, which is the 14th. The full moon is almost on, uh, it's about, it's about a couple of hand spans to the left of the, with the radiant, uh, the radiant of uh, people who aren't familiar with uh, meteor jargon is the uh, part of the sky where the meteor, if you trace the meteors back, that's where they appear from. Yep. But it means that roughly half the sky, the, the moon will be quite bright. And you want to be able to keep at least a part of your eyesight. You've got to block out the moon with an object, which was also blocked out, lots of meteors. And with the moon blocked out, you're going to miss out on a lot of the fainter meteors because the moon's so bright and and, uh, the background light will just wash out uh, a lot of the fainter meteors. You'll still see the occasional bright one. But instead of seeing meteor every couple of minutes or a meteor every minute, depending on where you are in the world, you're likely to see a meteor every six minutes or more. And that can be kind of boring. If any of our listeners have actually sat around watching uh, meteor showers, but at four o'clock in the morning when uh, meteors are usually at their best, five minutes before between meteors is a very long time and you can be sitting there going, it can't be five minutes. It can't be five minutes. It can't. I'm going to go to bed now. So uh, this year, there's not many meteors around because of the, of the moonlight. And on the uh, 15th Australian time, 14th Universal time, the, the moon is even closer to the radiant. So the there's a very sharp drop off. Yes, but we're still going to recommend that people go out anyway, Ian, because it's a great opportunity for people to put their headphones on and listen to an episode of Astrophys as they're looking for meteors. Yeah, or they could do something entirely different, which is have their, their headphones plugged into an FM radio band and try and listen to radio meteors. Oh, um, yes. You yeah. have to have a, a FM radio station which is below your local horizon so that when the meteors uh, start vaporising in the atmosphere, they create ionisation which reflects the radio waves back down to you. And so you can sit there listening to uh, blips and beeps as the, the meteors, which you can't see because of the moonlight, reflect radio waves. So that's that's one thing you can do. And besides, it's going to be very nice. I mean, you'll have the you're going to going to have Orion, the sky, and the Hyades and the Pleiades looking very pretty. And then you'll have Jupiter rising. And if you brought along a telescope, you can start looking at uh, Jupiter's moon. So it'll be a nice, lots of things will be washed out, but it still will be a bit pleasant if you wanted to just pop out and have a listen and uh, have a watch. Sounds good. And the ones you can't see, you'll be able to listen to. That sounds fantastic. And the Magellanic clouds shouldn't be too washed out. Oh, yeah, no, they'll be washed out. They'll be really they will be, will they? they? Yeah, yeah. So it'll be, even though it's directly opposite in the sky, they're, they're, the, the moonlight really gets to the faint extended objects. Yep. So a, a faint compact object, um, not so bad, but faint extended objects, things like 47 Tucana, the uh, globular cluster in the small Magellanic Cloud, should still be uh, visible. The Magellanic Clouds themselves, unless you've got really good eyesight, they'll be re- and you're in a uh, really out in the desert or somewhere, they'll be really washed out. Yeah. Well, it's still something to look forward to, Ian. And I did read somewhere that the rate for this meteor shower is it been increasing year by year so what we don't catch this year hopefully we'll catch next year 
Well, next year should be a lot better in the, in the meteor shower stakes. Again, it's not going to be as fa- fantastic as, a, as some years, but you won't have the full moon almost directly camped on top of the meteor shower. <laughs> it's always a bit of a... In the meantime, that, that's what's happening in the morning sky. And again, I mentioned Jupiter. Uh, Jupiter is now rising sufficiently early that you can still see uh, you can see Jupiter uh, quite high in relatively dark skies, say an hour before sunrise, and you can now uh, get some good photographs, telescope views of Jupiter. And even if you're not uh, looking through your telescope, you can use binoculars to watch the dance of the moons. But if you happen to be watching on the 20th of December you'll see a shadow transit of Io an hour before sunrise. So you'll be able to see Io cross the um, first Io's shadow and then Io itself cross the face of Jupiter, which would be a nice thing to see in the morning. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, uh, so yeah, if you... If, unfortunately, that's nowhere near the, uh, the, the time of the meteor shower. <laughs> uh, Otherwise, that'd be a good thing to watch as well. But that'll be if you're going to be up early in the morning. That that would be a very nice thing to watch on the twentieth. As the weeks go on and Jupiter gets higher and higher, there'll be more opportunities for seeing interesting moon and transits and uh, great red spot transits. But if we go back to uh, what's happening in the evening sky, those of you who've been watching the evening sky have been watching Venus slowly closing on Mars, unlike some weeks ago when Venus was crossing through Sagittarius and through the teapot of Sagittarius. Venus is in an area which is pretty boring at the moment, and so is Mars. In fact, Mars has faded enormously since uh, it was at opposition. Yes. Uh, and and uh, luckily, uh, Mars is in an area which is pretty devoid of bright stars, so it's relatively easy to see Mars as the brightest thing in, in the, uh, the western evening sky aside from Venus. Yep. Over the next, we'll see Mars and Venus slowly come closer together, but at the moment, Venus is absolutely brilliant in the sky, it's visible well into the dark, well after the sky is truly dark. Venus is still high in the sky and it's going to be with us for some time. If you've got a telescope, Venus is now almost exactly a half moon shape. It's still got a little way to go, but it's very obvious in a half moon shape. So that will be uh, in even small telescopes, you'll be able to pick up the shape of Venus. But one thing that's also happening is Mercury. I mentioned that Venus was moved, had moved through the, um, the teapot of Sagittarius. And now Mercury uh, is, um, although it's, it's done most of its interesting passes by. This week starts off with Mercury very close to the star Nunky, which forms it's the, one of the brightest stars in the handle of the teapot. Yep. And you'll be able to see that now. Uh, Mercury is actually now quite bright. It's, uh, uh, of course, not as bright as Venus, but it's it's a magnitude 0.6, so readily visible in the twilight, up to an hour after the sun sets. And so if you've got a nice flat horizon, you'll be able to see Mercury and Nunky very easily. At the beginning of the week, by the end of the week, Mercury's uh, rapidly heading back towards the horizon and will become harder and harder to see yep. as it becomes dimmer and dimmer. But at the start of the week, you'll be able to very easily see three quarters of an hour up, three quarters of an hour after sunset. You'll be able to see a lineup of Mercury, Venus, and Mars looking very nice indeed. Now, one disadvantage of Venus being so bright, apart from the fact that you look out to the western horizon, Venus hits you immediately. It's so bright, it's so white. But one disadvantage is it's uh, 
It's a bit close to a comet. Uh, that comet is 45 feet. If I was feeling up to it, I would say it's a proper name, which is something on the order of 45 feet Honda Murkos Pajuskova. And I've mispronounced everything except Honda in that name. Okay. We'll look that one up, Ian. Yes. Well, I, I, I'm reading it off the screen as I say, Honda, M-R-K-O-S-P-A-J-V-U-S-A-K-O-R. So, yeah, I'm, I'm no good with, with those pronunciations. But 45P Honda is uh, uh, now bright enough to see in, in good binoculars, although, uh, of course, with the brightening moonlight, this is making things a lot more difficult to see. It's a brightening substantially, so if you've got a, a telescope or, or good binoculars over the, the, uh, the coming nights, it will get brighter and brighter. After the 15th, when uh, when the waning moon uh, rises later in the sky, it'll be a lot easier to see. But it's also getting closer to the horizon. So uh, if you're if you're if you're uh, planning to look at it with a telescope, it will be best around about around about an hour and a half out after the sunset. But at that time, it's only about a hand span above the horizon so you need a really flat level horizon to see it so it'll be a little bit of a challenge but still if you've got good binoculars and you've got a level horizon 45p will be a a nice uh, comet for you to watch so what, um, what magnitude are we expecting for 45p honda well, 45p Honda, we expect it to get up to magnitude six. Oh yeah, uh, which is which is quite good. Unfortunately, at its brightest, it's going to be uh, uh, relatively close to the sun. But 45p is interesting in that it's going to come very close to Earth, about 0.8, uh, 0.08 of a uh, astronomical unit, which is you know, really quite close astronomically speaking. But the orbital position is not entirely favourable. So when it's at its brightest. It's really quite close to the sun, and so for the, it, it favours the northern hemisphere. So those people in the northern hemisphere will have the best best time of it. Whereas in the southern hemisphere, we only really get to see it much later when the when, when the comets are, are a little bit uh, dimmer. So yeah, it, it, uh, it, for uh, at the moment, uh, it'll be uh, a good target. For binocular viewers in both the southern and northern skies, and after its perihelion, it'll be uh, uh, quite good for um, our people in the northern hemisphere. Not so good for people in the uh, in the southern hemisphere. So, are we expecting a coma or a tail? Um, we expect to see at least a coma within binoculars. We may not see see much in the way of it uh, of a tail. Although um, previous uh, previous times the comet's gone past in in telescopic imagery, there's been a, a decent tail. Yep. Um, whether, whether or not uh, you'll be able to see see the tail with binoculars is another thing entirely. Okay. That, at least at least from the from, from, from the point of view of us in the southern hemisphere, we'll see a fuzzy dot. Yeah. <laughs> but from the northern hemisphere viewers, we'll probably get to see a, a reasonably nice uh, binocular uh, telescope binocular. A comet with a fuzzy coma and a short stubby tail, and astrophotographers will have a fun time. Very good, we, Ian. We've been talking about data, for example, how Venus has been passing close to first Calcis borealis and Nunky in the teapot of Sagittarius, and Mars has been passing close to some bright stars in Capricornius, and 
you'd think that uh, star names were pretty well organised by now. Yep. But the International Astronomical Union has just released 227 uh, official star names for a variety of stars, including Alpha Centauri. In the Southern Hemisphere, we know Alpha Centauri as Alpha Centauri. And Alpha, Alpha Centauri actually is, is properly the uh, two sun-sized orange-yellow uh, orange stars, whereas the name Proxima Centauri is for the red dwarf that um, orbits the, uh, the two stars we call uh, Alpha Centauri. Uh, well, the official name for Alpha Centauri is now going to be Rival Centaurus. Uh, this is the case of the old becoming new again. Yep. Um, Rival Contorus was, in fact, the ancient name for Alpha Centauri, and in some planetarium programs, for example, uh, Stellarium, uh, that uses Rival Contorus for the, the name for Alpha Centauri. But now it's official. Uh, Alpha Centauri is now Rival Contorus. Uh, Proxima Centauri remains Proxima Centauri. Uh, and if you go through the list of stars, you'll find that most of them are pretty much the same. There's, uh, they're, they're just officially saying that, yes, Sirius is the official name of Sirius. However, for example, uh, Fomalut. Uh, Fomalut is one of the uh, uh, bright southern stars. It's uh, the brightest star in a constellation called Hotkysinus uh, Austrinus. Uh, the southern fish, and even though we know it as Fomalhaut, it's had a whole bunch of different names with different yep. spellings. So now it's officially Fomalhaut rather than uh, the uh, uh, large number of variant spellings yep. that uh, that has been used in the past. So, for example, it, it, it's been called Fomalhaut, Fomalhut, and uh, <laughs> Fomalagout. Yep. So now it's officially Fomalhaut, uh, um, but for the vast majority of the stars that we know, they're staying the same. Vega stays, stays Vega, uh, and, and uh, Sirius stays Sirius, and so on and so forth. So it's uh, interesting that um, they've needed to officially say that Alpha Centauri is now rival Cantorus, but uh, we now can uh, point to the Southern Cross and go, that's rival Cantorus, and then everyone's going, what? That's also very good news, Ian. I, I must have caused some laughter among some of our listeners in, in the last two episodes because I'm pretty sure I referred to that as Riggle Kent. <laughs> well, there you go. It's now, it's, it's, we probably called it Riggle Kent at some stage, and uh, now it's Riggle Kentaurus. Um, <laughs> very good. We'll, we'll, the official name for Alpha 2 Libra is now. Zubinal Gumi, and the official name for Beta Libra is Zubinus Shamali. As this, these are now the official names for these stars. I defy you to pronounce them properly. <laughs> they're the early Arabian names, are they? They're the early Arabian names, but yep. now they're enshrined as the official names. Oh, that's good that we're honouring those ancient Arabian astronomers. Good to see. Whereas uh, Delta uh, Opikai and Eta Opikai are now Yed Prior and yet posterior. I don't know where those comes from, but yeah. Some of the stars that have the planets around them uh, have now got official names. 51 Pegasi, uh, which was one of the first stars to have a, uh, an exoplanet described around it, now has an entire family of exoplanets, is uh, now called Helvetios. I don't know if they've named it after the font Helvetica, but it, I can't find uh, why they cho 
chose Helvetios for 51 Pegasi. But um, there you go. So next time you talk, we, we can now talk about the planets around 51 Pegasi. We can talk about Helvetios A, B, C, etc. Next week, I'm going to talk about the close approach of Mars and Neptune, which will be uh, quite good in binoculars and small telescopes. Very good. Thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Thank you very much, Brendan. It was a pleasure to be on as, uh, as always. May you have clear skies and may Venus not get in the way of you observing 45 feet. Thank you very much. Excellent. That was Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave. And now for the news. Here is the news for Thursday, the 15th of December, 2016. This first report on LOFAR is adapted from a story by John Cartwright in the European Commission Research and Innovation magazine, Horizon. Across Europe, some 10,000 antenna stand courtly like squat flagpoles. They may not look like much, but they are, in a sense, an incredible, powerful time machine. Known collectively as the Low Frequency Array, LOFAR, the antennas are receiving radio signals that have travelled billions of years to get here, from the depths of the cosmos. That means they are looking billions of years into the past, when the universe was almost featureless and when planets, stars or galaxies didn't exist. Because light travels at a finite speed, all telescopes look into the past to some extent, but astrophysicist Professor Dominic Schwartz of Blyfield University in Germany who helped to plan the telescope said the cosmic dawn cannot be seen with any other instrument. Low-far antennas are concentrated in the Netherlands. Indeed, they are run by the Netherlands Institute for Radio Astronomy and are mostly funded by the Dutch government. But the EU and several other European countries have also backed the project to host instrumentation. Professor Schwartz's group operates a low-far station in Norderstadt in Germany, which is the size of a football pitch and contains nearly 200 LOFAR antennas. LOFAR is not a telescope in the familiar sense. It's not a big tube with glass lens and mirrors, nor is it one of those latticed cones that look like huge satellite dishes pointed up to the heavens. Instead, it is an array of what are essentially metal sticks. These are omnidirectional antennas, which do not point in any one direction, but receive radio signals from anywhere and everywhere. By combining the signals coming from individual antennas in different ways, however, it is possible to point the antennas electronically or computationally. That requires some clever maths and a hefty supercomputer. The latter is situated at University of Kroningen in the Netherlands, and the radio signals of interest are emitted by hydrogen, the most abundant element in the universe, and given its predominance, an observation of hydrogen is an observation of matter more generally. Hydrogen emits radio waves with a wavelength of 21 centimetres, but the universe is expanding, meaning that the radio waves of distant hydrogen atoms are stretched en route to us. By focusing on the most stretched radio waves, up to 2 metres in wavelength, LOFAR can focus on the most distant hydrogen, and therefore the oldest regions of the cosmos. LOFAR became operation in 2012, and the hope is that it will help scientists understand how the universe's first structures began to form. So now their work focuses on the maths, and they are developing new algorithms and machine learning to interrogate the mountains of data being generated by LOFAR. 
Next, we like to report regularly on the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array and Associated Projects, and this report focuses on the MWA, the Murchison Widefield Array. Today, it was announced that Daniel Ung, a master's student at Curtin University in Perth, Australia, has won the 2016 FICO Student Competition, an annual international contest organised for students interested in antennas, microwave devices, bioelectromagnetics, electromagnetic compatibility and other electromagnetic related fields. The 2016 competition generated global interest, attracting entries from Germany, USA and India. In Daniel's work with the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, ICRA, Daniel realised that knowledge of the beam pattern of a radio telescope is vital for calibration and image correction. He said, I hope the next generation of low-frequency telescopes, such as the Square Kilometre Array, will benefit from my project. He has just heard the news of his win. The International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research is an equal joint venture between Curtin University and the University of Western Australia. The Murchison Widefield Array, the MWA, is a precursor to the Square Kilometre Array, the SKA, the multi-billion dollar international project to build the world's largest radio telescope. Daniel's new beam model is currently being used by the MWA community to achieve its science goal. Mr. Ung's academic advisor, Dr. Adrian Sutinjo, will receive this year's Supervisor Award. Next up, via the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy and the Astrophysical Journal, another citizen science project turns up remarkable science. Almost 25,000 light years away, two dead stars orbit one another in less than five hours. Each of these two stars measures approximately 20 kilometers in diameter and has more mass than the Sun. This pair of neutron stars was discovered by an international team of scientists, including researchers from the Max Planck Institute of Gravitational Physics and the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy, and by volunteers from the distributed computing project Einstein at Home. The pulsar PSR J1913 plus 1102 was found with the Einstein at Home project on the computers of two of the participants in this project, Yui Tittmar from Germany and Gerald Schwader from the US. Neutron stars are the highly magnetized and extremely dense remnants of supernova explosions. Like a rapidly rotating cosmic lighthouse, they emit beams of radio waves into space. If Earth happens to lie up along one of these beams, large radio telescopes can detect the neutron star as a pulsating celestial source, a radio pulsar. Most of the about 2,500 known radio pulsars are isolated, that is, they're spinning alone in space. Only 255 are in binary systems with a companion star, and only a dozen or so of those is in an orbital dance with another neutron star. The new discovery was made in data from the Arecibo Radio Telescope. The Pelva Consortium is the Pulsar Surveys with the Arecibo's Alfred Array. An international team of scientists conducts a survey of the sky with the observatory to find new radio pulsars. The Pelva survey so far has discovered 171 radio pulsars. The data are also analysed by the Einstein at Home Distributed Computing Project, which has made 31 of these discoveries. Einstein at Home aggregates the computing power provided by more than 40,000 volunteers from all over 
over the world on their 50,000 laptops, PCs and smartphones. The project is one of the largest distributed volunteer computing projects around and a credit to citizen science. After the initial discovery of a binary system by Einstein at home in February 2012, the Pelfer researchers observed the system repeatedly. The pulsar they discovered spins once every 27.2 milliseconds, that's 37 times a second, and their observation showed that the object consists of two stars orbiting one another in a little bit less than five hours. Their discovery has implications for gravity wave astronomy. And if you want to join the Einstein at Home project, all you need to do is leave your computer running and go and Google Einstein at Home, download the app and get cracking. Help out. That's the news for this week. See you next week. Radio Wave.